Hello and welcome to the Den of Geek Book Club podcast. My name is Katie Burt and I am the books editor at denofgeek.com. Today I am talking to Theodora Goss, the author of The Extraordinary Adventures of the Athena Club series, which includes The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter and European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman, which was just released last month. Um, so congratulations on that. Thank you. And for our listeners who maybe haven't read these books yet, can you just explain what the Extraordinary Adventures of the Athena Club series is about? Okay. So uh, (laughs) there are these young women, uh, and it starts with Mary Jekyll. Um, Mary Jekyll finds out one day that uh, something really strange was going on with her father uh, when she was a little girl. She hasn't seen her father for a long time. I mean, she, she... He's, he died when she was a little girl, so he was not part of her life growing up. Um, but she finds out that he had secrets. And one of the secrets she finds out is a sort of sister she has named Diana Hyde. So you're going to recognize these names from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And what I'm doing in these books is bringing to life the daughters of mad scientists. Um, and some of them actually are characters that uh, were written about in the late 19th century. So they're characters from the books that were written at the time. And some of them I'm adding, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde did not have daughters in the original books. I've given them daughters. And it's because when I was researching these books, actually, this all came out of research I did for my doctoral dissertation. When I was researching these books, I realized that there was a period when mad scientists were really, really popular in literature, right at the end of the 19th century. And a lot of them create female monsters for one reason or another. So another of the characters is Catherine Moreau, who is uh, created out of a puma by Dr. Moreau. And she actually occurs in the island of Dr. Moreau. She's a character from that book. Uh, Another one is Beatrice Rappuccini, who is poisonous. And she comes from uh, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And uh, then we have Justine Frankenstein. Uh, and she is the female monster that was actually not created by Victor Frankenstein in the book. He uh, starts to create her and then he decides not to. Uh, and he, th- There's some reasons he decides not to. But I thought these characters were so interesting that I didn't want to just leave them uncreated or destroyed as they pretty much always are in the original books. I wanted to do something with them. And so I brought them to life in these books. And the second one that just came out um, sends them on an adventure um, into the Austro-Hungarian Empire where um, they discover more about their origins. It's such a cool premise. Um, and you you include some new characters in the second book. And I'm curious, was it hard for you to limit to you, you know, in the first book, you have, you know, you mentioned Beatrice Rappuccini, Catherine Moreau, Justine Frankenstein, and Diana Hyde. And then you also have Holmes and Watson as... I do. And, and more familiar um, incarnations, perhaps less of a reimagining of them, although still, yes. still through a different, a different, seen through a different perspective. And I'm curious how you chose these characters in particular. And as someone who I'm assuming has a vast, broad um, knowledge of of 19th century literature were there all these other characters that you were like, Oh, I just, I can't, like they, they didn't make the cut because there's only so much you can include in, in, in one book or in one series. Actually, 
I got all the ones I wanted to talk about in, <laughs> in this series. Um, and I, I should say, for anyone who likes these books and is interested, um, I'm doing final revisions on book number three, which is going to be the last one and brings all the storylines together into a final culminating set of chapters, I guess. Um, the, the, my knowledge is, I would say it's, it's more, not so much broad as um, th there were particular texts that I really knew about because I wrote a doctoral dissertation on uh, monsters in the late 19th century, not just female monsters, but uh, texts about monsters. I, I really, really focused on that. Um, and there were particular books that I knew I wanted to talk about and particular female monsters that I knew I wanted to talk about. So I'm really happy that over three books, I got to talk about all of them. Um, you know, it, when you're writing books, it's this, well, when I'm writing them, I guess, because <laughs> not everyone writes similarly. Um, a lot of the stuff that happened sort of came to me as I was writing the books. Um, and I started out with a plan at the beginning, but it was pretty partial. So there was a lot that I discovered along the way. And I'm really glad that by the end, I got to talk about all the characters I wanted to talk about. But at the beginning, I didn't necessarily know that I would be able to do that. So I'm glad it worked out the way it did. It's <laughs> almost like the books had a mind of their own and I was kind of going along with what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go. Yeah, and Mary Jekyll is is the main character. I'm curious how you decided um, how she became the focal point or if, you know, at this point you even think of her as the focal point because this is, you know, an, an ensemble cast of characters. It is an ensemble, but Mary is definitely the focal point. And to be perfectly honest, Mary is the focal point because she's the one who's most like me. Um, mm. And so for me, she was the easiest to write. I mean, of course, it's also Catherine writing the books, but ultimately it's me. And there are a lot of things about Mary, both good and bad, that I see it myself. Um, one of the weird things about being a writer is that when you write characters, they come out of you the good ones, the evil ones, the smart ones, the not so smart ones, their mistakes are mistakes you've made usually. And sometimes they're based on people you know, but often whatever you're writing is really coming, it's coming out of you. So you kind of have to find your inner, whatever those characters are. Um, and and Mary, nerdy and um, very <laughs> literal <laughs> and worried about money. I mean, a mm. lot of that is, is me. I should say you were talking about Watson and Holmes and um, the idea to, to incorporate them into the first book came from something I noticed when I was reading these books and studying them in my PhD program, which is I was looking at a map of London um, and realizing that all of the events that take place in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde happen on one side of Regent's Park in a particular area of London. And right across mm. Regent's Park is Baker Street. And in Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you have a murder. Mr. Hyde actually murders somebody. And it happens at the same time that Sherlock Holmes would have been solving mysteries right across the park. There is no way that if Sherlock Holmes were real, he would not know about the murder of Sir Danvers Carew in, you know, um, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so I was like, 
okay, they, this, this connection, this has to be there because if I'm writing about late 19th century London, Holmes and Watson have to be there. I mean, they're an essential part of literary late 19th century London. That's such a wonderful connection. I can only imagine how fun that was to realize. <laughs> it is really fun. And, the, you know, I was in London actually a month and a half ago doing some additional research for book three. And I walked that. I walked from um, one part of Regent's Park where Mary's house is supposedly set to the other part of Regent's Park, where nowadays you actually have the Sherlock Holmes Museum. And I went into that museum way back at the beginning when I was doing my initial research. And it's a 20-minute walk, tops. Mm. And um, you mentioned that Catherine is the, like, in-universe writer of this book. Um, but there are other, the other characters, the other female characters get a chance to interject their own voice into the story. How important was it for you to include that structure? And was there ever, yeah, I wonder what the discussion was like, maybe with your editor, when you originally were, were going through the draft of this, the manuscript of the first book, like, was... How, yeah, were you like this, this, you were always excited about this, she was excited about it, or was it like, will, will we include this in the, in the story? She actually loved it. So I was very lucky because mm. um, it's sort of a controversial choice. I mean, there are people who read the books who say it's annoying. And um, in a way, I mean, I understand that because if you have a group of girls who are constantly interrupting you, yeah, it might be annoying. And actually it annoys <laughs> Catherine. Um, the reason I did it is that for me, this is partly a book about women's voices. Mm -hmm. And when I first tried to write it, I tried to write it in a much more conventional way. Actually, the, the story was originally a novella um, that is online. Anyone can read it. It's called The Mad Scientist Daughter. So that was the first iteration. And then um, when I was thinking about what to turn into a novel or what to write as a novel, I thought that novella has a backstory. And so the first book is really the backstory of, of the novella, where it really is a lot of dialogue. It's, it's the characters, the main characters talking. Um, and some of it is actually just written as dialogue. And for me, that initial novella had a lot of energy. When I first wrote or started writing The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, it just lay on the page. It was like flat. And I thought, what is wrong with this book? Why can't I write it? I was trying to write it in a much more conventional way, and it just wasn't working. And I thought, I think it's because I'm not letting the characters talk. I think mm. they need to talk. So part of it was a very practical issue that in order to make the book come alive, I had to let them talk. So they started talking. Um, and, and it worked, um, for me at least, and it worked for my editor. So, so that was good. But the other thing about that structure is that I knew from the beginning that if you write a book about monsters, and I knew this because I'd studied books about monsters, you need to make the book monstrous in some way. It's got to be monstrous in terms of its form, because that's what the original books are. If you read um, Frankenstein, Frankenstein is structured like an onion. It's a really weird mm. book. You have all of these voices. It's not just a conventional narrative, but you have Frankenstein's voice, you have Walton's voice, you have the monster's voice, and each of them are trying to tell their stories, and their stories don't always um, agree with each other necessarily. And then you have Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
And it's also formally weird uh, in that you have a third person narrative, which is the narrative of the lawyer, Mr. Utterson. And then you have the letter of Mr. Lanyon, or sorry, Dr. Lanyon coming in. And then you have Dr. Jekyll's um, narrative coming in. And it's a frame narrative that doesn't have a final frame. So that that structure, all of these structures are kind of off in some way. And then the the most formally nutty one really is Dracula. Dracula is this compendium of all sorts of different documents, uh, newspaper articles and diary entries, all sorts of things sort of jammed together. Um, and that was a very deliberate choice on Bram Stoker's part. But you read it and you're essentially compiling the text. You're trying to figure out how to put the text together um, as you're reading it. The process of reading it asks more of you than a conventional narrative. And that's true of just about every single one of these texts that I can think of. Texts about monsters from the late 19th century that they break the mold of conventional narration. I love that paying attention to the structure as well as the the content and the reimagining of these stories, because, you know, so many of these stories have been retold in various mediums over and over again since they were published. But I think that is a part of the the, the modernizing the structure is often is often or the form is often left out. So it's really cool that you you. um Yeah, that was part of your your crafting of the story. I'm glad you like it. And Catherine actually says. I'm being a modernist because <laughs> she's aware of it because she's a writer. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. And it's just like on the most basic level calls attention to the fact that it, it matters who's telling the story, um, which seems like is a very important part of, of your, yeah, reimagining of, of these stories. Um, but you're, you know, to go off that a little bit, you're, you're writing a feminist story set in a time when the feminist movement was obviously at a very different point than it is now. And yes. I'm cu- curious if you thought, like, how much you thought about that when you're writing um, in terms of balancing the perspective of the modern reader with the perspective of the characters within the story. I thought about it a lot in terms of the history, because I teach a class on the late 19th century. We do a lot of history. We focus on these kinds of monstrous texts, but we have an entire unit on the new woman. Um, I think I actually call it the new woman and the female monster. And it's about uh, what was going on at the time in terms of the suffrage movement, in terms of dress reform. You had women who were writing at the time, who were part of the aesthetic movement, who were uh, producing texts that were sort of breaking the mold and trying to make the case for women being able to go to college, to vote, etc. Um, so my characters would certainly have been aware of all of this, and they are in the text. They talk about it. Um, and um, at the same time, you still had a model of conventional womanhood that came out of John Ruskin's idea of separate spheres. So there was still very much this idea that man was active. He was out in the world doing stuff. Women stayed in the home. Um, the the uh, idea of woman in the domestic sphere was maintained by this kind of ideology of the home and of the domestic space as the special place for women function. So. Um, you know, if you're writing historical fiction, 
I sort of had to have characters who, I mean, they're, they're young women at this particular time. They're breaking out um, because that's what young women or a lot of young women were doing at the time. Um, they're venturing out into London in places where they are not necessarily supposed to go. But actually, young women were doing that at the time. There was the new woman. The new woman was renting a flat with other women. She was riding a bicycle. She was going to college. All of that stuff was happening. So it's a really interesting time period. Um, I, I have had, I have heard the comment that it's interesting. Uh, two different kinds of comments. I've heard one comment, which is, oh, well, young, proper young women in the Victorian era wouldn't do that. Um, and actually, they, they would have and they did. <laughs> and they could be quite militant. <laughs> I mean, if you read stories of the suffrage movement, there were women who were, um, you know, arrested and put in prison because they were being so militant. Mm. Um, and the other the other um, comment that I've heard from some people is, well, but but why don't they just go out and do whatever they want to and not worry about these rules of propriety? Um, and I don't think young women at the time would have done that. There would have been, I mean, it depends on who they are. There, there would have been limits on what they felt they could do, but different characters feel that differently. Like Mary's been brought up to be a proper young woman. Diana, not so much. <laughs> and, and, you know, Catherine's a puma, so a whole other <laughs> set of rules applies. I, and I think we often project our own, like, you know, ideas, obviously, onto the past and like this idea that everything has just been like a very clear linear progression and um, yes. is we, easy to <laughs> we do, fall into. We, we often misunderstand the past. A lot of my students um, get this idea of what women's lives were like in the past, really from the 1950s. So there are mm. a lot of people who think, oh, women in the Victorian era, they were in the home. Um and um, they were taking care of kids and taking care of the household. And that's a kind of back projection from the ideology of the 1950s, because the truth in the Victorian era was that you had upper class women who were, in fact, in charge of the home and the domestic sphere, but they were running households. And the vast majority of women were working, but a lot of them were working in the home because they were servants. So you had this enormous population of servants in London. Those were not women who were taking care of the home in the same way we think of it. They were taking care of someone else's home. They were actually earning a salary and they, they were working women. The, and the vast majority of women were lower class women who were working. And some of them were working in factories um, and stores. But yeah, we have we have this idea of the position of women in society as um, fixed over time, and it's not at all fixed. And also of going through this very simple trajectory, and the trajectory is not at all simple. There were um, periods in history when women had more rights. There were periods when they had fewer rights. So legally, the position of women in parts of the Middle Ages was actually better than in the 19th century. Hmm. Well, I officially want to take your class. <laughs> um, but I feel like I got a little a little taste of it right there. Um, <laughs> One of the aspects I really like about these books is that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, like, f feminist stories that are being told right now that are about, like, one strong female character, whatever that means, but, you know, very much focused on, like, 
one um, woman who can sometimes be like the exception to the rule, but um, to have this story that has so many women and is about the relationships to each other and the community they create, not only just in, in terms of what that, what kind of message that sends, I think for feminism, but also just like uh, pushing back against this like chosen one, very individualist um, way of storytelling that we tend to have. Um yeah, I'm just curious if you feel like there are things you could do with that kind of ensemble piece that has so many different kinds of women that um, that you particularly liked, or you feel like you couldn't do if this was if this was more of a um, yeah, I don't know, like chosen chosen one tale is a very specific genre, but something that has a more individual focus. Absolutely, I wanted to give a full spectrum, and one of the things that I wanted to make sure I had was female villains um, because women are not simple, <laughs> right? I mean, there, there isn't, it, it's like Smurfette syndrome. Mm-hmm. They're not Smurfette. And, and even nowadays, I look at, for example, movie posters, and you have, you know, five superheroes, and one of them's a woman. Mm-hmm. Or you have an ensemble cast of characters in a, a heist um, movie, and one of them's a woman. A- and to me, that seems really very odd um, because we uh, there are more of us than that, and <laughs> we're we're very different. Um, and we live in a world where you have women like Margaret Thatcher and women like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, women like um, uh, I'm trying to think of very different. Um, presentations of womanhood. Mm -hmm. We have Taylor Swift. We have, uh, you know, even in the popular sphere, we have all these different kinds of women. We have very different women writers. We have very different women lawyers. Um, Women are individuals. And one of the things that having so many women characters allowed me to do was have lots of different kinds of women with different opinions. Uh, and, And one of the things I like about the voices is that they disagree. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes they argue, sometimes they um, have quarrels uh, with each other, um, but it allows me to show a variety of women. Uh, in a way, this is a deliberate pushback against late Victorian texts like Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or like um, texts by H. Ryder Haggard for example, Mm -hmm. that have an ensemble of male characters. And you have this tradition of adventure stories. Treasure Island would be another one where you have an ensemble of wonderful male characters, maybe a female character, maybe no female characters. And so I wanted an ensemble of female characters, but then I didn't want one-dimensional male characters either. Um, So some of them are good, some of them are bad. Um, And I didn't also want it set up a dichotomy where you have good female characters and bad male characters, because that's Mm -hmm. not what it's about either. Um, And the, I think you see that in the second book, even more that you have a real diversity in terms of um, who's on which side. And sometimes it's hard to tell exactly who's on which side. Mm. Um, And your, the first book is set in Victorian London, but the second one, uh, you get to go on a bit of a European adventure. Um, yes. How how fun was that for you? And um, yeah, how how difficult was it too to have to um, you know describe and imagine um, 
various settings as opposed to staying very, you know, very close in, uh, in the first book. Well, the difficulty was actually pretty much the same as for the first book, because it's also difficult to imagine late Victorian London. Um, there are things you have to do mentally to get yourself into that space. Um, and, you know, hopefully I did it in a convincing way, but there are things you have to pay attention to that usually people don't pay attention to during research. Um, things, small details, um, how you get into and out of public transportation, textures of the road, the smells, things that can be a little difficult to research. But I read a lot of books on late 19th century London, what it was like to live there. Um, I did a ton of research in London itself. One of the really fun things about writing the second book was that I got to do that kind of research in Vienna and Budapest. Mm. And Budapest actually is where I was born. So um, I knew more about Budapest. I had never been to Vienna. And so in order to write the book, what I did was go to Vienna uh, and I spent some time really intensively researching there. It was amazing. Um, but also, it was quite a challenge. I had a limited amount of time. And so what I did was, I think I walked my feet off. But I <laughs> went around the Ring, uh, the Ringstrasse um, in Vienna. I particularly paid attention to old buildings. I really needed to know what was there in the late 19th century. Um, there were really exciting moments. Like um, I found... Um, uh, Mrs. Norton's house. <laughs> mm. I, I found a house and I thought, okay, this is this particular character. This is where she lives. I know <laughs> where she lives now. And it's a, it's a real address. All the street names are real. Um, with a few exceptions, um, Mary's address in London, that is a composite of actually several streets, several locations, but the place names in Vienna are real. Um, I went to, <laughs> I had this very weird, way of going to museums in that I went to a whole bunch of museums in one day, but I only went to the floors that dealt with the late 19th century. Mm. So the entire time my, I was mentally in this particular era, I looked at art, I looked at maps of Vienna. Um, I looked at furniture from the time period. Um, I read a lot about the secession movement, which was the art movement that was going on at the time. Um, Oh, I went to the Freud Museum. That was so much fun. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I want to go on the book tour, like that, the actual travel book tour that is accompanying this. Like, I don't know. Book tourism is a thing, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? That would be so much fun. And the most important thing, of course, was that I had to taste all the pastries because mm. I described food. Um, and so actually, <laughs> if you go to Budapest, um, I, I deliberately incorporated uh, my favorite cafes, which were there wow. in the late 19th century. Uh, and you can go and you can have ice cream there. You can have very traditional cakes there. And there's a scene where um, one of Mary's uh, friends, her old governess actually in Budapest, takes her and the girls to have pastries. And all of those are real pastries. You can go to that cafe and you can have all those pastries. Okay, we're going to arrange it. This should, be, <laughs> this should be like a package deal you can purchase. Totally, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so the sequel is much longer than the first book. Yes. Um, so I'm curious how that, if that changed, um, like the structure of the story, because it, it's almost like double the page count, I think. 
Yeah, that was kind of an accident. <laughs> I mean, I didn't mean to do that. Um, it, it just, evidently, it takes a lot longer <laughs> to, and the, the third book actually is uh, not that long. The third book is um, a little bit longer than the first book, but nowhere near as long as the second book. Um, the way I think about it is that for the second book, I actually accidentally wrote two books. Mm. And at one point I asked my editor, do you think this is actually two books? Because it's going to be long. And she looked at it and she said, you know, it actually fits together. I think it's one book and we'll publish it as one book. Um, but what I did was break it apart internally into two volumes because approximately the first half is Vienna and approximately the second half is Budapest. But yeah, I, I didn't mean to do that. So, you know, for anyone who's like, oh my gosh, this is so long. I apologize. Or you can pretend it's two books if that makes it easier you can for you. It's two books. <laughs> yeah, it's like two books with a cliffhanger right in the middle. <laughs> um, can you talk at all about um, the third book in terms of what places or characters we might be seeing? Or is that still, you know, under wraps? Uh, I can say some things about it. The third book takes us back to London. And I can tell you where I did the research for it. Some of it I did in London, but this time I had to go to Cornwall. And I spent some time in Penzance and uh, in a little town near Penzance called Marazion. I was just there in June and off the coast of Marazion, just across from it, there is an island and on that island is a castle. It's the most magical place. It's called St. Michael's Mount. And there's a causeway that goes out. When the tide is low, you can walk across the causeway. And when the tide is high, um, it's covered. So the island is cut off. You can only get there by boat. I have no idea how it came to me that the third book would be set um, in Cornwall. I, I honestly don't know. But uh, once again, I had to go to Cornwall. I had to go on location because it totally changes your experience mm. writing a book to actually see the place. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it made a huge difference. Uh, and so that's where I was doing my research. So we'll, we'll be, there's, there's still a little bit in Europe, but, um, we'll be mostly back in England. I'm really excited for that. Um, and where can people find you online if they want to know what you're up to? Um, or even also if you have any upcoming appearances that you'd like to let people know about. The best place to check is my website, which is just theodoragoss.com. Um, and on my website, you have links to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I have accounts on all of those places. And I post every day. Um, I've been really bad recently about updating my blog. I also, I have a blog. Um, I haven't, I've been writing a book, so I haven't had time to blog. I'm going to get fair. back to it. But if you check Facebook, uh, Instagram, or Twitter, the other thing is that I post photos from places where I go for research. So there are a whole bunch of photographs from these places there. And you can you can see what I was using as reference for the third book. I was in the British Museum. Um, I was uh, out on St. Michael's Mount, all sorts of places. Also food. There's also food up there. <laughs> That's a great pitch. <laughs> as someone who was, you know, lurking on your Twitter earlier today, I can vouch for its entertainment and... Um, other value. So Good. definitely Sometimes check it out. Complaining about, you know, airplanes or something like that. But <laughs> hopefully it's usually somewhat entertaining. 
Definitely. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. And both The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter and European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewomen are available for purchase now. So go buy them. <laughs> <laughs>